That's a clown question, bro. Hi, what's up, Bunny? So I'm gonna kick some dirt. He gets on base. Just a bit outside. I'm not the type of player that's gonna be Johnny Hustle. If you don't want me to watch the ball, you can go get it out of the ocean. And welcome to Above Replacement Radio, where we're talking baseball kind of whenever. I'm your host, Christiana. Over there on the other side of the screen is Daniel Curran. How you doing, Daniel? Chris, today is the day. Today is the big day. I've been waiting for January 26th since around mid-November, and it's finally here. Yeah, uh, for those who do not have the context, uh, we get the results of the Hall of Fame elections. And normally it's even more exciting, but this year, this year, very doubtful that anyone is going to be getting in. No one's going to get in. No one will be getting in this year. It's going to be so sad because like, I'm going to watch three hours of MLB Network Hall of Fame coverage. They're probably going to bring on a bunch of like cool guests. Then, you know, the way the, the election works, I don't know if it's going to work differently because of COVID or not, but like they're going to have someone from the BBWAA. I'm assuming it's Rosencrans or maybe it's Jeff Idelson. Someone is going to get up on a podium, reveal an envelope that has no, no one's name. It's going to be the most anticlimactic, de- depressing thing ever. Yeah. And then just like, just like uh, last year, it'll be like Kurt Schilling, he got, uh 200 263 votes out of how many votes 396 396 (laughs) yeah it's gonna be a rough time but i'm excited a lot of i mean obviously this year is probably going to be remembered for nobody got in it was terrible but i'm really interested to see guys like scott Rowland because i think he's in a position where he could be getting in next year i'm excited to see guys like todd helton who's through 44 percent of the ballots has gained uh, over 30 votes so far. Uh, I'm excited for Andrew Jones, a guy who's been finally getting some some uh, attention after hovering like 15, 20% in his first three years. And Billy Wagner too. Those four are going to have huge gains this year and all four of them I voted for. So I'm definitely excited to see uh, where they end up and what we can be looking at going into next year. Yeah, for us especially, because we've done uh, – Today we're going to be doing our tenth bubble case, so we've covered extensively uh, each of the you know viable candidates on the um, yeah on the ballot. So it's pretty exciting for us to see like you know where where all of them are going to end up standing yeah this year. And no, uh, I've, I think- I've had a lot of I've had a lot of questions uh, about this year. Like one of my biggest questions was, are any of the first years going to stay on the ballot? And I think. If anyone really has a chance, it's Mark Burley and maybe Tory Hunter. Um, Tory Hunter, I'd say, is honestly like complete 50-50. Mark Burley, I think, is a decent chance, but I really do hope he stays on uh, because I think he's deserving at least of more consideration. Yeah, um, and one one thought I may have is I think, do you think that um, the increase in attention to Todd Helton has some has a little something to do with Larry Walker getting 100 percent I wrote I wrote a uh, a blog about a month or so ago uh for the fans magazine where I literally said like Todd Helton has been gaining and a lot of it has to do with that barrier of course field breaking I do think that has a huge role yeah because he's gotten uh you know especially a significant increase I feel like in terms of net gain he might be like second no he's first he's first yeah he's first yeah 
he's got yeah he's gotten the most gain out of out of anyone in the uh hall of fame voting so yeah it definitely has a big deal for sure glad you uh glad you think that as well yeah um, um i mean i yeah like i said all my questions are going to be answered um are we going to like do like a like a part two of this episode where we discuss the results because i feel like that should be its own episode um i i think we're gonna do um a, a half episode yeah that's what i meant like what is this part or episode 89 this is episode 87. 87. Okay, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Yeah, we'll have like an episode 87 and a half. Um, yep. I don't know if you want to do it like live or like 30 minutes after, but uh, yeah, I definitely think we should make our own episode strictly on the Hall of Fame results. Um, yeah, we'll we'll see. When did they when did they announce the so, results? So the MLB Network coverage starts at 3 p.m. Eastern, and the the announcement is at six. Okay, so so, it, so by this time tomorrow we will have known. Okay, so maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll do something at six. Uh, I'll, yeah, I'll just have like the computer in a in a room and just be watching. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, I'll just have it in my living room, and uh, yeah, I'll just I'll we'll give our live reactions. It'll be cool. Yep. Yep. So we'll, yeah, yeah, you'll get the rawest of emotion even though we expect nothing and we're probably going to get nothing. Yeah. Uh, but if by some miracle, Kurt Schilling makes it in, can you imagine that reaction? I, yeah. I mean, I would be, I would embarrass myself. Yeah, uh, I would too. I would embarrass myself on that. Yeah. It, it would be absolutely shocking if. What if just, Scott Rowland just uh, runs the table on the, on the non-public ballots? If, <laughs> If Schilling was netting negative and then randomly got 21 other 21 21 gained votes from the people that suck. Yeah, I would I would tell my parents to get champagne so I could pop champagne (laughs) for the uh, for the celebration. Yeah, I would give it about a point zero two five percent chance that that happens. Yeah, so that's uh. So that's 25 times out of uh with 10,000. Sure. Sure. So that sounds sounds impossible enough. So that's the uh that's the chances of uh Kurt Schilling getting into the Hall of Fame in 2021. I feel like I feel like he might be able might be able to get in uh 2022, but this year doesn't and, uh, seem like Yeah. I'll explain uh, so I did a lot of digging on uh, the potential veterans era committee uh, or the today's game era committee. And I'll be explaining that uh, on next show, because I think it's a lot of, it's very important that a lot of people understand what might be going on after next year's uh, go around. So um, if you want to hear that, tune into episode 87 and a half. Um, yeah, for sure. For sure. We'll have, we'll have something, something up uh, in our next half episode. And speaking of the Hall of Fame, and I guess it brings us to a, another down note, we've yeah. been losing a lot of Hall of Famers, and uh, one of the biggest ones out there uh, still living today, you know, a top, for sure a top three living ball player, Hank Aaron, passed away on, uh, on a Friday. Was it Friday? 
He, he um, passed away at the age of 86. Um, you know, he had the home run record for, for 33 years. 33 years. And uh, yeah, it's a pretty, a very big deal in the uh, baseball community. Yeah. Um, obviously that news was the first was, it was what I woke up to, uh, which was, it's heartbreaking. I mean, I, you know, the man's obviously 86 years old. Um, it's not like this was, I don't know what the cause of death was. It could have just been natural causes. Um, but, you know, obviously it's not, it's unexpected, but it's still not like, I don't know. How am I supposed to say this? It's not an absolute tragedy. Yes. Yeah, like, that's what it is. It's not, we didn't, you know, lose someone too young. It wasn't, you know, an automobile accident or um, someone getting cancer at a young age. You know, he... Um, he lived a great life. Yeah, and he a did. Full life. He lived a great life. And, you know, it's not to... Uh, not to say it isn't a, a big deal at all, but yeah, like lived a full life, made a great impact on the baseball community. And it's more of a, you know, it's more of a celebration of the life of it Hank is. Aaron. Um, Hank Aaron left a legacy that I feel like baseball fans can genuinely embrace and enjoy uh, for what it is. You know, baseball obviously doesn't have the cleanest uh, background. When you look at the past, obviously, you know, for 70 years, uh, people weren't allowed to play the game because of the color of their skin. And even if, and even when, you know, when integration did happen, you had to be at a higher standard to prove that you could play with the other guys. Uh, if you, if you were born with a different skin color and, you know, as ridiculous as it sounds, that was the reality. And Hank Aaron was one of the guys that uh, really broke through and what became a black baseball icon. I mean, he was one of the very first ones. It was, he was right up there with guys like, you know, Robinson, Mays, Doby. Like, and he was, I mean, he was a guy who was the perfect model of consistency. Uh, he had, he hit at least 10 home runs in all 23 seasons that he played in the big leagues, Chris. There was never a single season where he wasn't an efficient player. He was efficient at age 20 and he was efficient at age 42. And he, you know, he led the Braves uh, to a world series uh, when they were in Milwaukee, he also became an icon for Atlanta in the deep South, nonetheless, uh, which was kind of, I mean, it's kind of one of the more impressive things is that, you know, in the seventies in the deep South, um, he became an icon as an African-American figure. Yeah, he was definitely a big, he was a great figure, a, you know, and partially, um, and it was partially due to him being, you know, just a model citizen model player very easily likable you know didn't really never really did anything wrong during his career um and uh yeah that's that's uh that's hank aaron's life and career he was he was a classy individual i mean he he grew up you know he was born in mobile alabama in 1934 that is i mean that's alabama during segregation uh, that's obviously not ideal for anybody and especially not in someone like Aaron's case you know one thing that he mentioned uh, in a piece by MLB Network is that during his childhood there were times where the KKK would come like marching through his neighborhood uh, completely unannounced completely obviously uninvited and he would have to like hide under his bed uh, with his seven siblings to you know in fear for his life this was as a child like this was 
you know, you're learning how life works. And all of a sudden there are these people here that hate you because of something you can't control and something that doesn't make you any less of a person. That's what Hank Aaron grew up with. And it kind of followed him all the way through. You know, you saw the amount of hate mail that he got during his career, especially when he was going to break Babe Ruth's record. He mentioned he got 3000 hate letters a day and it was death threats. It was people saying, if you break the Babe's record, like I'm going to find you and I'm going to shoot you. Like I'm going to sneak a gun into so-and-so stadium. Like on this day, you're going to be at this ball field and you're going to die. Like he faced that every single day. Like, can you imagine how exhausting that is for at least 50 years of your life? And it probably didn't even, didn't even stop there. You know, obviously it's, it probably never really stopped for him, even though that it became, you know, less and less acceptable through time. Like it was always kind of, it probably always ran with him and he pushed through and it never publicly seemed like it bothered him, which is incredible to me. Yeah, it is. It was a big, uh, big challenge for him because, you know, you know, Robinson broke the, uh, the color barrier, Dobie and Mays came after him, but Aaron was going after the most prized record in sports in yeah in sports yeah probably in sports especially at the time in the 70s you know going after a record that was uh about almost 40 years old it was 37 years old yeah or the the record was about 40 years old because ruth retired in uh 1935 Mm -hmm. so yeah and you know he went after that record in 1974 so it was very cherished and um you know, he fought through all that adversity and came out on top. And, you, you know, you didn't really, you, you know, it, it didn't seem to um, outwardly, at least, you know, I can't say anything about internally, but outwardly phase him. Yeah. I mean, he went about his business every single day at the most professional levels. And not only that, but, you know, as his life went on, he just stayed that way. Uh, in 2007, you know, 34 years after he snatched that record from the babe, it was taken from him when Barry Bonds came along and he hit number 756. And nobody wanted, you know, like no one wanted Aaron to break the babe's record, no one wanted Barry Bonds to break Aaron's record because, you know, he would go to opposing ballparks, people would boo him, they would have asterisks, you know, they did not want him to break this record. And he did it at home you know, which was obviously a nice moment for him and for that crowd to make it seem like it was celebrated at the time, because if it was anywhere else, you probably don't get that result. And to this day, a lot of people still see Hank Aaron as the true home run king. And at this point, I can't really argue it. You know, it is what it is, and people are just going to have their opinions. But one person who did recognize Barry Bonds as the true home run king was Hank Aaron. And he was happy to give that spot up as soon as it happened. You know, he played a video uh, you know, he had a video played to Bonds on that moment. He said, like, you know, I want to congratulate Barry Bonds for, for breaking my record. I'm happy to have, have held it for 33 years, and I'm happy that someone went along and broke it. Like, he, it was very genuine. It wasn't forced. And that really speaks volumes to who, who Hank Aaron the person was, both when he was a child, when he was a player going through that adversity, and when he grew up to become an older man. Yeah, I could not say that any better um is that is that what we have on uh the great henry aaron i have a couple more things um you know he's a guy who goes beyond baseball Uh, he was he's an american hero 
I mean, he did a lot of he did a lot for the game and for the world after he retired. He was very involved in social justice. And one thing that I probably the most impressive thing to me about him is that, or at least in the last week, is that uh, ever since he died on Friday, five current and former U.S. presidents have made statements regarding his death. That like five. Look, there have been 46 in history. He has gotten recognition from five of them. Uh, and obviously they're all very recent or current, uh, but that is very, very impressive. Like I, how many baseball players do you think would get that kind of recognition all time? Like if um, Hank Aaron, Babe Ruth, Willie Mays, Jackie Robinson, Ted Williams. And I, I don't know, maybe Roberto Clemente. Roberto Clemente is definitely one, but like point is very, 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 very limited people, even just beyond baseball, very limited people would get that sort of recognition from the highest level of, of American citizens. And that's what Hank Aaron got times five. Uh, yeah. So rest in peace to Hank Aaron. Uh, any, anything more on him? That's all I got. So great man. Yes. Uh, rest in peace, Hank Aaron. And now we get into the, uh, the world of baseball as it is today. Another downer story. Uh, yeah, especially if you're a uh, New York Mets fan. Uh, Jared Porter, their newly signed GM in December, um, has been fired because of uh, sexual harassment uh, claims, which are true. They're proven they're, to be they're deaf, they're more than claims, yeah. Yeah, they're uh, <laughs> sexual harassment um, actions made by Jared Porter, uh, you know, sent unsolicited um unsolicited private photos to a genitalia uh, to a uh reporter fe- uh female foreign reporter. That's right. And uh on top of that there was you know 62 unanswered messages, but that wasn't really the important thing. That just you know was the cherry on top. But yeah the uh New York Mets once again without a uh, without a general manager. Yeah, um, I mean, the second you think that everything's and I can't really blame this on Steve Cohen, but the second you think that everything's going well for the Mets and they're finally out of the the PR turmoil, you know, with the Wilpons, you had the stadium catching on fire, you had Mickey Calloway cursing out reporters, you had Carlos Beltran getting fired before suiting up in a game. Steve Cohen comes in and you have you know. He's, he's making moves. He's got Francis Golden Door. He's got Trevor May. He's got James McCann. He's active on Twitter. He's interacting with all the fans. You know, it seems like everything is going great. And then this happens. Um, and, you know, the Mets obviously did the right thing. They fired him almost immediately. I mean, you can't, you know, people were saying it was, it was too late, which I, I can't really argue. Like, you need time to discuss with the rest of, of your team. You can't just... You can't just put it out the second it happens. Um, you know, obviously you have a lot of takes regarding this and it doesn't take, you know, two baseball geniuses like Chris and I to tell you that what he did was bad and that it was very problematic and that his firing was justified. Um, I, I mean, that's, that's very basic, basic information. Um, I guess I'll let you start. Cause I, I kind of rambled there uh, with Hank and with this. So what were your takeaways I don't really have much. I mean, it's just a simple thing that we see, you know, not only in uh, 
like sports, but this happens the world. in regular life. There's, and especially a high position like general manager, you can't have someone like that representing your team at such a high level. Maybe it would be a little different if he was not a name, like not a big name associated with the franchise, but you know, you can't, there's, you have no ability to cover such a story up when he is legit the most important man in your front office. So and even you know, if it and even if it happened, you know, four and a half years ago, like that doesn't really make much of a difference because this is the only thing that's reported. And how are we, you know, who's to say that this is the only person that he's interacted like this with? Like he very well could have done it multiple times. He probably has because, I mean, in a lot of scenarios like this, like these people tend to be repeat offenders, and Jared Porter very, very well may be that. Yeah, it's very possible because you know, yeah, it could it could just be the tip of the iceberg. So, you know, you're not going to risk even more bad publicity coming out about, you know, the general manager of your team. And, you know, I guess it gives them, you know, by firing him, you know, relatively quickly, it gives them time to potentially get another general manager, which I don't know how that's going to fare for them. I mean, they obviously just had an interview process, you know, they can very easily... Uh, call back to whoever was the runner-up. Yeah, uh, and that shouldn't be. I believe it was Zach Scott. I think it was was the runner-up. And he has not been hired by anybody else. Not yet. Um, but yeah, um, you know, this has obviously caused caused kind of a chain reaction throughout the baseball industry, where you had, you know, I read a bunch of other stories after that. Uh, you know, it was our it was our good friend Jeff Passan who had the article along with Mina Kimes. Uh, over at ESPN. And ever since that, you know, it's been, there's been a lot of other people coming out. Uh, Brittany Giroli uh, from The Athletic, um, I believe it was the next day, um, talked about an experience she had with an Orioles player uh, in 2012 where something like this happened. And, you know, it's, we, as fans, we can't really know how much of this is truly out there. And from what we've all heard, like Porter seems to be the tip of the iceberg. And in an industry that has been going through sort of a culture shift where in the last two months, we've had the first female GM get hired. We've had the first female coach get hired. You can't have people like this uh, in big positions. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's not even, you know, a, uh, a gender line, really. It's just, no. you can't have people doing, doing this to anybody you know, either direction, obviously. And, you know, obviously, you know, it's just dis disproportionately a issue like Porter's, but mm -hmm. yeah, you just can't, you, you can't have things like this happening uh, in your organization, especially with the, I guess, you know, it wasn't in the organization at the time, but you can't have a representative like that at the, at the top. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I don't really have much else on the subject really. Yeah. Um, Trying to think, because I definitely, I definitely had something else. Uh, what did I have? Oh, okay. Um, so obviously this is like, you know, it's problematic. That's not, that doesn't go, that goes without saying. But I mean, if you really dig deeper into it, it only gets more and more messed up. Uh, I mean, the fact that this is a foreign reporter who was uh, just getting used to like American culture and trying to like fit in more, uh, I don't know if you read too much into the into the column, Chris, but like he was basically trying to convince her that like, 
you know, sending like unsolicited pictures like that, not, not, not the explicit ones, but like being overtly uh, forward like that was like completely normal uh, in, in American culture, which I don't think it is to the extent that he was trying to push it. Uh, and not only that, but you know, normally when you experience like workplace harassment like this, you can go to human resources and they'll sort it out. That doesn't exist between a journalist and a source. And when you're a journalist and you have a source acting that way, you can't really say anything because you need them to be able to do your job and you can't report them anywhere to, to stop that behavior. So at the best case scenario, you're, you're losing a source. So he kind of in a position of power between the two of them took advantage of that. And also just the fact that she was, you know, trying to get in with the culture, like that's extremely messed up. Yeah. That's, that is the creepy thing is, yeah. you know, he, he, you know, persuaded persuaded this person that doesn't really know about you know american culture or its communication level and you know persuaded persuaded her that what he was doing was normal you know it's that's <laughs> that's very manipulative uh which is uh that, you know that's obviously creepy goes without saying yeah so bottom line uh fellas and ladies too, but but you know disproportionately it is very one sided. But fellas, don't don't do this. Uh, if you're if you're talking to someone who you have interest in, but that isn't reciprocated, uh, you know I've been in that position before, and it isn't fun. But save face and walk away. Uh yeah, yeah exactly. Don't <laughs> first don't. of all you know limit the unreplied messages to about five maybe even that might be extreme like if i if i text someone like two or three times i feel start feeling weird about it like i don't know i don't know how you could go to 62 and i don't know how you could go 60 and then be like you know what i need to do now (laughs) i need to send her a picture of my junk that's gonna work yeah i don't don't understand how someone's brain operates that way i mean maybe maybe one time maybe one time the 60 second message got him a reply he beat maris Maybe that, maybe that's it. Maybe someone made him put in, put in the work, but he beat Robert Maris's record. We, we, we both highly doubt that. So, uh, rest in peace to, uh, Jared Porter's, uh, front office career with the Mets and probably his career in a, in a position of power in baseball. Yeah. Especially a high position of power. He will, I, I would get, he, he might, he'll probably work in another front office again in, you know, it'd have to be, be it have to be somewhere where it's not getting reported because if it's reported that, I don't know, the Pittsburgh pirates hire him even to the lowest field, they're going to get shame for that. And it's, it's going to be really bad PR. Yeah, it will. It will be. And, you know, he won't, he won't be getting hired uh, anytime soon. You know, if he gets hired, you know, he's, he's a younger guy, so he will probably get hired in yeah. maybe five years or so to and it have to he's gonna have to go through some sort of like time off that's very extended like there's no way he gets hired i'd say in the next year at least yeah that will uh it would be very doubtful that that is happening but um any, anything more on the uh on the jared porter saga nope so now on to some things that were on the field news we finally get to talk about actual baseball transactions yes that's not depressing 
So, um, so that group that group chat is not dead quite yet. Um, oh, I see that. <laughs> but uh, so George Springer, who you may know from uh, being a very good center fielder in, in baseball since about, since about 2014, very above replacement. Um, <laughs> the first big pit. First big pin to drop in free agency, signing a six-year, $150 million deal with the uh, Buffalo Blue Jays, or as okay. they like to be called, the Toronto Blue Jays. I am very curious to see uh, if they end up going back to the Rogers Center this year, because if they end up at Salem Field again, I am banking on George Springer to put up like a 1075 OPS season, specifically at home. Um, yeah, uh, because if you remember, yeah, it, I highlighted the Jays offense in Salem field because for whatever reason, it was just wild. Yeah. Like more so see, than it ever was at Rogers. I'm trying to see, um, if that continued sig- significantly, it did uh, park factor, uh, their park factor probably won't say much because they played. Some, it's only um, like 15 games they played there. Yeah. And they more played, that, but. They played home games at like Nationals Park and mm-hmm. Camden Yards and you know all those stadiums. Well, but... no, I don't even think that counted though. Like okay. I, at least on fan graphs, it doesn't. Um, all right, just so real quick. I, I'm looking at his uh, his like career numbers at Rogers Center, or at least oh never mind, that's against the Blue Jays. It's not uh, ballpark. Let me see. What are his numbers looking like at uh at the old Rogers Center? Ooh, in 65 plate appearances, George Springer in the Rogers Center has a slash line of 358, 453, 604, 1057 with three home runs and 10 RBI. Um, actually, let me, okay. So the Blue Jays definitely did very well at Solon Field. I'm trying to look at the- yes. I'm trying to look at the other teams. Um, yeah, the Blue Jays had a an 8.23 OPS at at Solon Field, which is ridiculous for a team, an entire team, to have an 8.23 OPS. Mm-hmm. Uh, their split OPS plus, or I've, I lost it, but it's it, it was a it was between 112 and 115. So it might say that you know they're disproportionately good. Um, they're disproportionately good at uh at hitting at that ballpark but hey you know it might be it might be a thing i'm trying to find the uh, league batting splits so that i can find the um so that i can find these stats but yeah but anyway before we get to that george springer you know we talked about how uh you know springer to the blue jays would make a lot of sense him investing in the long-term plan of the Blue Jays, you know, they've, they have a big, you know, a big, big core and very good core in, you know, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Kevin Biggio, Bo Bichette, uh, Nate Pearson, Lourdes, Lourdes Gurriel Jr. And it's a long-term plan to make this team very good. And it makes sense that he's, you know, going to be going there for six years. Yeah, um, 
just looking at his Rogers Center splits here. Uh, in 2019, I, I know he only played three games there, so it's not uh, it's not exactly a, a, a ideal sample size. But in those three games, he had a TOPS plus that is uh, that's as a standard for himself at 190. So he was 90% above average by his own standards in those three games at Rogers Center, and it's kind of continued throughout his whole career because his career T- TOPS plus uh, in that building sits at a 148. So, you know, it feels like a fit ballpark wise. Uh, This obviously changes up the whole dynamic of the Blue Jays lineup. You know, it's obviously you're adding in one of the best leadoff hitters in the game right now. A guy you can plug in at that number one spot uh, who might hit a home run. And if not, no, maybe he'll hit a double. And then you have guys like Bo Bichette behind him, guys like Kevin Biggio behind him, guys like Teoscar Hernandez behind him who are going to drive him in. I mean, that that makes for a very easy first inning run for the Blue Jays. Um, so, uh, in total combined blue Jays and opponents, the OPS is 775. So there's probably, probably a factor there Yeah. Uh, in terms of, in terms of, uh, teams hitting at solid field. So yeah, that could be a thing. It is a minor league ballpark. So I imagine the dimensions would be a little smaller yeah. than and if the blue jays should be rooting for uh for covid to run rampant in the united states um if you think about it i don't know i don't know if it's a but US... not but not to the point where but not to the point where it cancels the season like just enough for canada to not let them back in yeah i i guess <laughs> was was that the, yeah i guess that was the issue it wasn't that was the issue team. because you know they're in a different country and canada was like yeah we don't want all these teams coming in from the u.s playing our team and then having our team go out to the u.s and coming back in on repeat for three months and now we're gonna have to do it over six months by the way cactus league thing too did you see that uh yeah it's a little off topic but i mean uh, the a bunch of a bunch of mayors of towns in Arizona signed basically a uh, I don't know what to call it a form saying that they want to they want the MLB to push back the start of the Cactus League uh, because of COVID in Maricopa County, Arizona, which is where a lot of the teams train uh, during the month of March. Especially if you know, I mean, I don't think we're gonna have fans at spring training games, but if we're gonna have all those teams down there, you know that does provide a little bit of danger, especially for the players. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, we haven't had a situation in baseball since last spring training where, you know, a thousand, a thousand different, over a thousand different people will be coming in uh, for just, you know, with players and staff will be coming into, you know, these, these places, especially the Cactus League where, they're all near each other. All these facilities are near each other. Uh, so we haven't had a situation like this. So I guess it makes sense if they think it's a problem, it might, it might have to be delayed. And, you know, this is, we're kind of on the tail end, you know, I'm not a virologist or anything, but we're on the tail end of, you know, holiday cases making everything spread. So maybe it might change, you know, after a couple of weeks, but you know, it's a, it's a bad sign. Yeah. It's not good. Um, but anyway, George Springer, um, you have anything else on him? By the way, he's had a, uh, wow. Every season that he's been in the big leagues, he's had at least a 114 OPS plus. Yeah. And that's, that's as a, uh, that's as a very good 
uh, outfielder as well. You can pencil him in for at least like 25 jacks, uh, an OPA, you know, he's going to be 30%-ish above league average. That's your leadoff hitter. That's what you're starting with. Yeah, and every every season with at least 100 games is a, has two, two and a half B-war. He has, you know, three five-plus win seasons, four four-plus win seasons, according to baseball reference. Yeah. Um, and, um... He, he was my center fielder in the uh, in the uh, impromptu current player draft, so he's good enough for that. Yeah, he is. Uh, by the way, like you know, I think there a big going into last year, there was a big narrative that the Astros won't be able to hit anymore. You know, they don't have trash cans. George Springer was probably the best offensive player from that core uh, in 2019. He was just shy of a 900 OPS with an 899. Uh, this is a guy that can hit whether he knows what's coming or not. And he proved it last year. And now he's going to Toronto uh, to do it some more. Yeah, it, it seems like it, you know, overall, very good move. You know, his savant statistics look extremely good as well. His expected WOBA in 2020 was in the 96th percentile. Yeah. Um, which means. Uh, you can probably make a case that he was the number one free agent on the market. Uh, yeah, there's a case to be made because he has. He he definitely has the best resume, the best career resume really of anyone, anyone on the free agent market. Yeah, over the last two years, uh, a 284, 376, 576, 953 for a 147 OPS plus, 53 home runs in just 668 at bats. That's like a little more than a season, and he has over 50 home runs. Yeah, and to go along with that, tremendous fielder in 2019. He was in the 94th percentile in outs above average. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a measure of how good you are in the field. He was, you know, only 6% of the league was was better than him in terms of that. He had eight, eight total outs above average. So, you know, that was very good. Three, uh, according to Baseball Savant, 3%, uh, 3% catch percent, catch percentage added. So he's definitely well above average as a fielder. You know, this is a, uh, and yeah, also native of uh, New Britain, Connecticut, which is about <laughs> 30, 30 minutes from where I live. And, uh, yeah. and yeah, that's, you know, UConn, UConn alum, teammate with Matt Barnes. Very cool. Oh, now they're, oh my God, we're going to get that matchup so many times. Every time yeah. the Red Sox faced the Astros and Matt Barnes was into Frey Springer, it was mentioned at least three times in the at-bat. Now they're in the same division. Oh, my God. I didn't even think about that until now. Yeah. D- O'Bri- Dave O'Brien's just going to be like, and have you uh, heard once these again, guys played the... at UConn together. <laughs> two, two Big East, uh, two UConn teammates going back and forth. <laughs> um, where do we think the Blue Jays offense ranks? in the American league right now. Cause I think there's a fair case that it's top three. Um, yeah. Cause you would put Yankees and white Sox ahead of them. And then, and then uh, who, I mean, the twins lost firepower for sure. They did. And they're going to lose Nelson Cruz. Yeah. They're, they, they lost Rosario and they're definitely probably. And so many other guys players. had down years, like, like uh, Kepler had a down year last year. Polanco had a down year last year. 
I think the Jays have a top three offense in the American League. I mean, like, um, going beyond the guys I already mentioned, like, Vlad Guerrero Jr. is still expected to break out soon. Kevin Biggio, I think, can only go up from where he is now. Boba Shett is uh, extraordinary. Lourdes Gurriel Jr. and Rowdy Telez are both heavily underrated. And then you plug Springer in in center field, uh, where Randall Gritchick was, who was kind of one of the weaker players on the team. Uh, yeah. It, and though he's getting uh, paid more than almost anyone else on the roster. Yeah, a lot of it has to do with um... – yeah, he got, he's getting paid more than any position player not named Springer. Yeah, and a, a lot of it has to do with um, the potential of, of all these players. You know, the biggest example is mm-hmm. Vladimir Guerrero Jr., obviously. And, uh, you know, we'll see. I'm looking at the OPS Plus rankings from uh, the American League last year. Mm-hmm. It, it goes Yankees, White Sox. And then uh, the Rays had 109, the Angels and Blue Jays had 108. But then you also add, then you add George Springer, and that probably puts them over the top as a top three offense. Yeah, you know, I know it was a 60 game season last year, but I th- yeah, that's you look a at, and you solid look at case to, to go along top. with it. Uh, you got you know you got your guy Hunjin Ryu leading that rotation. Uh, you hope that Nate Pearson can develop. I don't I don't think this is the the complete breakout, but you certainly hope for more than, first of all, you hope that he can stay healthy. That's the most important thing. Uh, but when he is healthy, you hope for more than a six ERA uh, with a FIP of seven one nine. You also hope that Robbie Ray can, uh, I'm going to have a whole segment on Robbie Ray at some point. You're not going to know when it's coming, but it's going to happen uh, because he is one of the most interesting pitchers in the whole league. And uh, it deserves a lot of, a lot of talking. And uh, from there on, you have Tanner Roark. And I think they should resign Taiwan Walker. Yeah, they, they, they should be resigned. And they also uh, just signed Kirby Yates. Yeah, they did sign Kirby Yates, who was pretty much injured all of last year and had, you know, probably should have won reliever of the year in 2019. You could probably stretch to say that the Blue Jays could uh, become a be a better team than the Rays in 2021. Um. Because their bullpen is heavily underrated, too. They just got Kirby Yates. Rafael Dolis was ex- excellent for them last year. Uh, A.J. Cole and Ryan Barocchi were both pretty good for them. Um, who else? Yeah, mostly those guys. Uh, Tom Hatch did all right for them as well in 26 and a third. Um, oh, Jordan, Jordan Romano. That guy was good. 123 ERA, only 14 innings pitched, but still a 1-2-3 is a 1-2-3. Um, yeah, I'm looking at, I'm looking for the, um, bullpen rankings. Yeah. Blue Jays are, were right in the middle of the pack, but also they were facing the lineups of the East, which were, and now they have Kirby Yates, which were superior. And now they have Kirby Yates, which, you know, uh, reliever shelf, reliever shelf life is always questionable, but having a guy that probably should have won reliever of the year in 2019, you you always you always like having that um for sure so you know that he's a guy if he has you know four or five good appearances can get slotted right into that uh right into that closer role and you know whatever happened to ken giles by the way is he on the free agent market free agent i believe yeah yeah no he was your guy to watch yep and then uh i think he i think he got injured too yeah but he also had a nine plus ERA in the few innings he pitched. Yeah, well, I mean, usually, usually 
it's because of a it's because of a problem that's developing that's why you know kirby yates was struggling so much last year Mm -hmm. probably had a lingering injury and then after you give up about eight runs and six and a third you're like there might be a problem here uh with my body but yeah that's uh that's all i got that's the blue jays the blue jays also were right on their way to signing another outfielder yeah from the astros in michael brantley but uh reports were wrong and michael brantley is actually going to be staying with the houston astros for two more years for the exact same deal he signed two years ago two years 32 million dollars i mean that just speaks to how consistent michael brantley has been throughout his whole career yeah that isn't that's that's a very good point i would expect nothing less but the weird thing that i saw and i told you about this the original report from hazel may uh was that the uh springer or not springer um Brantley had a three-year deal with the Blue Jays uh, that was agreed to, and, you know, it was happening. And obviously those reports turned out false, and he signs a two-year deal with Houston. So if he had a three-year offer and he took a two-year deal, like that, you know, if those reports are both correct, I mean, obviously they can't both be correct, but if he had that offer, I'm very confused because did he take, did he take less years? Like, did the blue did the Astros offer more average annual value? Does he think that they're in a better position position to win, or was that offer not even made? Yeah, I mean, it might be. It's very possible that it's uh that it's bad sourcing. Um, yeah, but there was but Hazel May wasn't the only one. Like Rosenthal, by the way, Rosenthal has kind of been off his game this offseason. Um, he had it, I believe. Feinstein had it. Like a lot of people had it. Um, yeah, it, it was very confusing it was very weird but like i'm very curious to see to know if an offer was ever made yeah that is a uh that's a good question for sure Uh, i mean honestly when i saw the blue jays were going after michael brantley you know it was good you know it definitely would have improved their team but it was but i didn't understand where he where he fit into that puzzle yeah everyone was like all right they're gonna put him at dh which i guess makes sense but there's so much more you can do with with uh michael brantley and if you wanted to get a dh that costs about 16 million dollars get a nelson year, cruz get nelson cruz <laughs> yeah exactly what do you like yeah it wouldn't really make that much sense like i was thinking like okay i guess you 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 put him at dh you move to les to first you put vlad back at third and then travis shaw is kind of the odd man out but like it still felt really weird to me yeah it 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 just it really yeah it really did not make very much sense to me so honestly like if i'm a blue jays fan i'm not i'm definitely not that mad about it it's like all right it it doesn't doesn't really doesn't really make a lot of sense anyway uh but uh by the way for for those wondering how good michael brantley is above or uh since 2018 among outfielders 12th in f4 so one of, the, one of the better outfielders in the league for sure uh earning every bit of that every bit of that uh that uh 32 million dollars a 130 weighted runs created plus since uh since 2018 and he gets he gets those he gets those hits he has a 309 average since 2018 so if you 
you definitely you definitely love to see that um from from michael brantley but yeah that's how good he's been and you know in terms of the astros i mean i i really don't know what to think about the astros they seem like a team that's going to be hovering around 500 um like they did last year maybe a little above but yeah i mean you know they won't have verlander but this definitely helps their their playoff chances it feels like there's a lot that needs to go right for the astros for this to work this year you know like zach Greinke is going into his age 37 season he he like you mentioned uh on slightly alarming he he had a very uh slow end to last season a very pitiful end at that um how much you know how much do you still trust lance mccullers how much do you trust guys like Framber Valdez and Christian Javier, do you still think that they can go out there and perform like they did? And they're both still young, so that very well could be the case, but you're going to need that. You also need Jose Arquiti to step up. That's our guy. But, yeah. you know, you're losing Springer. You are getting Brantley back, which is huge. And the A's are kind of, you know, they're losing probably Simeon and they already lost Hendricks. So that's a team that obviously on paper isn't going to look as good. The Astros, you know, they needed a chance to salvage this opportunity. And that's what you get Michael Brantley for. You don't want to lose two starting outfielders in one off season. Um, yeah, definitely not very good. Yeah. Definitely a very good move on the, uh, on the Astros end. Cause you know, also Josh Reddick's a free agent too. So that'd be three outfielders you're losing. Um, yeah, that is, that is very true. And, you know, anytime you can hold on to a guy, after that uh 2017 situation you gotta you gotta go after that guy aggressively for sure you know they're the astros are not as popular as they once were in terms of free agent destinations so uh i think that's all i got on on michael brantley anything anything more from your end no so even you know this is a uh a plentiful week in terms of baseball news it was uh, yeah Finally. definitely big big week for us we love we love to see it for sure uh some more i guess more minor moves you know springer and brantley were definitely the two biggest moves um and but you know something that especially educated baseball fans like us something that sort of flips our gears is a pirates pitcher gets traded uh jameson tyon this time being traded uh, to the New York Yankees who desperately need some, uh, or, you know, desperately need some starting pitching help. I guess they did get Kluber, but yeah, they, they need some guys behind Cole. And uh, this is your number two. Yeah. Jameson Tyon for until Severino comes back, of course. Yeah. This is your number two guy as of now. You know, this move is huge for so many reasons. Um, I've taught, you know, Jamison Tyon in his last full season in 2018, I know it was long ago, but you still look at a guy with a 320 ERA and 191 innings pitched. That's a guy who is, you know, it's obviously that makes your team better, especially on a team that's looking for starting pitching. Uh, he's coming off of his second Tommy John surgery. He's also uh, in the past come back from cancer. So he's obviously dealt with, a load of adversity and he's, you know, fought through it and uh, he's finally getting a chance to shine on the big stage, which I'm, I'm happy for him, honestly. Um, and one of the main reasons this move is huge, obviously, is, you know, you, you provide support behind Garrett Cole, but with the depth you now have in your starting pitching staff where with, you know, Tyon, Kluber, 
Uh, you have guys like Debbie Garcia and Clark Schmidt that still need to develop. You have Jordan Montgomery. You have Domingo Herman. You know, that's seven options I just listed out. That puts so much less pressure on Luis Severino to get back. And like now they can, you know, the Yankees can take their time with him and really make sure that he's healthy when he gets back and that he can perform it the way that he's capable of. Because you don't want to rush him back uh, in a season where, you know, you're probably going to be fighting for the division and you're definitely going to be fighting for a World Series. Yeah, that that is a great point. You you know, you don't want Luis Severino looking at the at the standings, seeing the Yankees hovering around 500 for the first month of the season and saying, "Hey, like I need to get back." Yeah. You yeah, you have to get a good supporting cast there. And yeah, Tyon Tyon is that guy and if I'm not mistaken, he should be completely good to go right away, right? I believe so, yeah. Um and you know, I I guess I'm excited for that the, comeback. Maybe the Yankees will have him on a on an innings limit um, for the season, but I mean it, he'll probably be able to play out most of a yeah most of a full season, especially while Severino's out. So I'm imagining what if it's like 120 innings pitched. I think that seems like feasible, right? Uh, yeah, it would make sense. I I remember. I mean, I guess it was. This was, you know, nine years ago. Strasburg was on a 180 inning pitch count, so it's was, probably decreased. That was weird, though. Like, didn't he didn't even really have that much of an injury problem beforehand, did he? Um, At least not to this degree. Uh, because, like, I remember they in 2012, they shut him down in the late – or, yeah, it was 2012. They shut him down at the end of the season to preserve him for future playoff runs. Um, yeah, I mean, he had a uh, – Tommy John in 2011. Okay, so he, I guess he did. Yeah, but, that, no, that I was, mean, that was two really Tommy Johns. Um, or I think the inning, I think Strasburg's innings limit was 160 because uh, his 2012, his 2012 uh, innings pitch mark is 159.1, so yeah, it must have been around 160. So yeah, 120 is definitely feasible, especially nine years later where innings. You know, innings marks for pitchers definitely aren't as high, and they've decreased. And you have, you know, a lot of bullpen depth. Uh, we'll get into that later as well. But you have bullpen depth that can back him up if he goes five innings. Uh, you know, two earned. Like yeah, in, in that lineup, he's getting the win more times than not. Yeah, you don't. Yeah, you don't need full starts out of him right away. And uh, I guess that's also something that Kluber can bring. Is Kluber is an innings eater, so. If he's healthy, he should, he's healthy, he should probably yeah. be able to eat up innings and Tyon won't really have the pressure of trying to give the bullpen a, a relative night off. But but yeah, and uh the the uh Pirates got four prospects in return, none above number fifteen in the according to MLB.com in the Yankees uh farm system, you know, no one above the fifteenth best prospect in their system. So, I mean, I guess it's just a kind of a, uh, you know, trying to hoping one of them works out. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're all very young, you know, the pirates are, how long is Tyon under contract for? Uh, okay. Another three years. So actually, no, wait, hold on two years. Okay. So Tyon's under contract for two years. Uh, Obviously, the Pirates are not going to be competing within the next two years. So, you know, I think I don't know if they were going for for quality immediately. I think they were going for more quantity in this trade. And that's kind of what they got is 
you know, they got four prospects from the Yankees. Uh, the probability that they can somewhat hit on one of them is, is decent enough uh, for a guy with two years of control that you're not going to be competing with those. Yeah. And the Yankees weren't going to be giving up. Yeah. If the Yankees weren't probably weren't going to be giving up anything top five yeah, for, for a, a guy coming off injury starter who hasn't pitched a full season in two years. Yeah. So I guess you might as well just yeah. get, I think it's a good trade on both sides. Yeah, it, which is it, rare because the Pirates normally don't do that. They don't make good trades. Yeah, and let like unless Tyon becomes the next Garrett Cole, which I guess is. But even yeah. then, like you can't even go into that trade expecting that. Yeah, no. Like you were like we're questioning how much he's actually going to be able to pitch. You can't really expect him to go out and striking out fourteen guys per nine innings. Yeah, definitely not. You can't. You can't expect that. But yeah, uh, is that uh, is that all we have on the? Jameson tie on trade. Guess so. Um, and then uh, two more acquisitions we have to get to. Two more uh, transactions. Yeah, we, uh, we should rapid fire these. So we got uh, so, a lot to go over in the bubble case. Yeah, we do, we do have a lot. Uh, so uh, first one happened today. Uh, Adam Ottavino, who you know struggled last year, but was one of the best relievers in baseball the previous two years. Uh, the Yankees trade him and his $11 million to, or most of the $11 million to the uh, rival Boston Red Sox. Yeah. Um, what was your reaction when you saw this trade? Um, I didn't actually, I've, for some reason, I thought he had a good year last year. So I was very excited. Then it toned down a little bit, but I'm still pretty excited. I was just very shocked. Yeah, well, you you sent me a a <laughs> meme, and then I usually you send you send a reaction, and then I go to Twitter, and then I usually know out, before Chris does find out what it is because the the only Twitter notifications I have is from the actual Major League Baseball, so they're you know very late on things, obviously. So you know, unless I'm actually on the app then I don't get, then I don't get news, you know, that quickly. So yeah. yeah that, I, uh, I see out of, you know, to the socks for and... essentially nothing. Um, I think the the purpose of this for the Yankees, it's obvious. It's obviously a salary dump. Uh, they're trying to get as far below the luxury tax as possible, right? At least I don't think that's what they're doing, but I think they're trying to free up that eight mil to make a different move. Um, whether that be, a Jock Peterson, whether that be an Alex Colome, they're obviously going to use the money that would have gone to Adam Adovino, um to go get someone else. Like I cannot imagine Brian Cashman just doing that for nothing in the next two months. Um, yeah, that would be um, that would be interesting, especially a team that um, has been built on their bullpen, and even with the acquisitions of Tyon and Kluver, they still have, I guess some doubts in the uh in the rotation especially with guys coming off of injury um so yeah it would make sense if they were trying to do that i'm looking for a, a nice stat on a little stat look at this, oh no i got it i got it um he's been one of the best relievers in the game uh consistently obviously last year you know it didn't work out uh but his peripherals were very good uh with a five nine with a five eight nine era uh, that went along with a 3-5-2 FIP, 
uh, a three, you know, it's all like mid threes uh, with all of his peripherals, whether you want to look at uh, his FIP, his XFIP, his SIERA, um, his expected ERA, it's all, uh, it's all like mid to low, mid to high threes. So this is obviously a guy that had a much better season uh, than what, it, what he would expect from the ERA. And especially in a 60 game season, uh, I think a lot of that was inflated by one bad stuff, one bad outing. It was that one in Toronto where he gave up the grand slam to J- Danny Jansen. Um, as I was saying, uh, between 2019, since 2018, which was his final year in Colorado, he ranks thir- 13th in Major League Baseball in reliever F4 with a 3.4, 10th in strikeouts per nine with a 12.47, and 13th in ERA with a 2.61. Uh, so, whether no matter how, which way you look at it, Adam Adovito has been one of the best relievers in the league since 2018. He's on a contract year going into age 35 with the Red Sox. And this is one that Red Sox fans should feel happy about, even if it helps the Yankees get someone else. Like it's a guy that's going to make your team better. Yeah. And he passes both our, our peripheral tests, you know, FIP expected ERA. He looked, he, you know, had a, he was pitching better than his ERA uh, perceived him to be pitching, especially like it's hard to trust a full reliever season, never mind a 60 game reliever yeah. season where a guy pitched 18 innings, which is two ball games. Up until, up until that outing uh, against the Blue Jays on September 7th, he had a 3.55 ERA and then it ballooned to 7.82. Yeah. And then for, for long term things, you, you went to fan graphs, I went to uh, Stat Head. Since 2018, he ranks fourth in reliever B-War. It goes uh, Hader, Hendricks, Lugo, Ottavino. So definitely... um, Shout out to Seth Lugo, too. Yeah, shout out out to Seth Lugo, another... Uh, Also worth noting, um, in his first... I did eight and a third innings. I know it's very small, but in his first... Okay, we'll call it 11 outings. His first 11 outings of the year until 2020, he had a 108 ERA. Uh, and that was with nine strikeouts and eight in the third innings. So there's no reason to believe that Adam Adovino can't come back strong in 2021. Um, yeah. And looking for one more thing, one more thing filters. Uh, yeah. Um, so actually funny since 2018, only him and Trevor Bauer are, uh, only him and Trevor Bauer have two seasons with 65 plus innings pitched and an ERA plus of 195 or better. So that's pretty, pretty interesting that Bauer was able to have that. Uh, hey, wow. Really? Yeah. 2018. Dang. He had that. Uh, he had a very good season, but he did. I didn't know it was a 195 ERA plus. Is that? Or... No, no. He had a 126. What? What? That's well, he had a 126 ERA plus in. T- oh wait, uh, 196 270. Oh, I was looking at. Okay, I got mixed up. I was looking yeah. at. I was looking at 2019 with Cleveland. It was like I skipped over. Okay, yeah, no, you're right. He did have a 196 ERA plus that year. Wow. Yeah, shout out to Trevor Bauer joining uh, Adam Adovino is the only guy since 2018 to have 65 plus innings, multiple seasons of 65 plus innings pitch and the area plus of 195 or better. Um, uh, <laughs> and they, they stay on the theme of having one, two really good ERA seasons and then one really bad one. 
Yeah, it's funny. There's a list of 19 who have had one or more such season. Uh, Clay Buckles in 2018 on the list. Never forget Clay Drow. With that crazy season with the Diamondbacks. That was a lot of fun. (laughs) Where he just randomly was killing it for for the Diamondbacks. That was warmed my heart for sure. Uh, but yeah, that's that's the Adam, Adam Adovino. That's a name. That is a name. The double and it's a slider. The double, the double vowels, uh, yeah. alliteration in both names. That's gonna take some. That's gonna take some uh, some practice. And yeah, fantastic slider. Definitely could have struck out Babe Ruth. And uh, that's gonna be great for the rivalry too. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. For sure. Um, and uh, so, yeah, you know, you're talking to two Red Sox fans here. We're generally pretty happy about this one, if we're being mm-hmm. honest. And, you know, whatever the Yank- the Yankees will probably do well from this as well. So it's probably yeah. a good two-sided deal. It's very weird. The Red Sox and Yankees don't usually do deals with each other. The last time they did it was uh, the iconic Stephen Drew for Kelly, no- Kelly Johnson trade. That was hysterical. I remember that day. Well, I- what was the purpose of that trade? Like they were, were, were Brian Sherrington and Brian Cashman just bored. They're like, want to do something? Here's my 35 year old shortstop. I'll say your 35 year old shortstop. Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe John Henry didn't want to pay the <laughs> two, the three million left on Stephen Drew's deal. I don't know, but uh, the last acquisition we have to get to. Uh, kind of an under-the-radar one. I think it slipped under the radar because this guy's one of the best relievers in baseball. Uh, Brad Hand, who, who's, uh, his option was not picked up by Cleveland, correct? Yes. Uh, so he went he on the free agent. Uh, yeah, yeah, he was too costly for the, uh, for the Indians. And he uh, went on the free agent market, signed with the Washington Nationals for – one year, ten and a half million dollars. Uh, he's yeah. This is a uh, this is one where it should work out for both sides. Okay, I am calling BS on Baseball References projections for him. Uh, so between 2019 and 2020, Brad Hand had a 2.95 ERA. Baseball Reference believes he'll have a, a 3.75 uh, going forward with it. During those two years, Brad Hand had a 12.8 strikeouts per nine. Baseball Reference predicts an 11. Um, which is far, which is far lower than it actually than it was in the past. Uh, also, strikeout to walk ratio goes from five point one four between those two years to three point three two. Yeah, I don't, I don't buy that. Uh, Brad Hand, this is a guy that was originally reported that he was signing with the New York Mets. Uh, that did not happen, and now he's going to a division rival, a, t- a team that has been looking for bullpen help since the dawn of time. Uh, yeah, Brad Hand. Yeah, the Nationals, even in their World Cheer- World Series championship year, wow. their uh, bullpen was the worst in baseball. And today I learned that Brad Hand pitched for the Florida Marlins. Yeah, well, you wow. know, learn something new every day. <laughs> exactly, learn something new every. <laughs> I wonder every how many day. like active players played for the Florida Marlins, like John um, Carlos Stanton did, Andrew Miller. Andrew Miller did. Um, it's, uh, Hanley, Hanley's not in the. He's not active. Anymore. 
He's not active. Uh, Steve Ciszek did. That's, that's Anibal pretty... Sanchez did. He did. He did. That's true. He sure did. Um, the list is becoming smaller and smaller. Yep. A shame. They that uh. That's that's just in 2011. There was probably people in other years. Not uh. Like Miguel Cabrera. I don't know how we didn't name him yet. He played for him. Oh yeah, back, all the way back in 2003. And while we're on that topic, how about Cameron Maben? Um. True. Traded for him. Same with Andrew Miller. And the Nationals had a uh, – they continued their bullpen blunder to put alliteration on it last year. Had a 509 bullpen ERA last year. So definitely help is necessary. Brad Hand is a guy that can, that can do that. Um, over the past two seasons, um, you know, I guess this guy, he's not a guy that – you rely on for like more than three outs, but uh, over the past two years, two nine five ERA, hundred sixty one ERA plus, uh, two four zero FIP, and uh, I guess most importantly, fifty out of fifty five in save opportunities. Yeah, that's big. The Nationals have needed someone to lock it down for a while. Sean Doolittle had a down year this year, so did Daniel Hudson. Uh, you bring Brad Hand in to be that guy. And that could make a much bigger difference than people realize. Yeah, it very well could. It very and well this could. This is a team that has added Josh Bell, uh, Kyle Schwarber, and now Brad Hand in their offseason. And uh, when you already have a guy like Juan Soto, like that, this team could go could go under the radar this year. Yeah, if you get if you get Bell and Schwarber back to um, peak form, back to like 2019 self, uh, that's. That's a somewhat dangerous lineup. We already know how good the rotation is. And then you, you know, you improve the bullpen with hand there big time, yeah. putting less pressure on the rest of the bullpen. You know, no one, I'm going to guess no one really has to worry about taking the closer role anymore. It's not really up for debate now, I would no. say, because hand is a guy that's consistently been a closer since, uh, since about 2017 and uh no, no one else on the nationals can really say that uh say that much but yeah uh i guess that's that's the brad hand deal to the nationals now we get into the moment you've all been waiting for yes this has been uh we've been waiting for this one it's the uh omar viscal and yeah omar viscal on the field hall of fame case uh, for and against. Obviously, we're unbiased here. We come in with zero bias. And just a disclaimer, uh, we understand the allegations that have been going against Omar Vizquel for the last month and a half now. Uh, obviously, The Athletic uh, released a story on December 16th uh, conv- uh, accusing him of domestic violence against his spouse. Uh, we are aware of that, and we are going to let that investigation, uh, you know, run its course. And from there we will, you know, we're assuming the writers will decide his fate, but this case here strictly will be his on the field stuff, but we are aware of what is going on in his personal life right now and how it affects his hall of fame case. Yeah. Perfect. Perfectly said. Yeah. We're, we were never going to ever vote for him anyway, without, uh, any of his off the field, stuff but um definitely 
puts more of a case against him, but you know, it is an ongoing investigation. So yeah. um, we'll just stave off of that because, you know, what frustrated us, especially over the past year, especially with the last election was the growing popularity of one Omar Vizquel being discussed as a hall of fame caliber player. And, you know, with, with hall of fame caliber, I guess maybe not statistics, but, you know, looking like a hall of fame player that definitely uh, frustrated with us. It's jived with us. This is, and... this is going to be less about Omar Vizquel and more about how bad the eye test is. Yeah. And, you know, people, some people point out his stats, you know, mostly his count stats, his count stats. Um, I believe actually he might be like top 10 all time in singles, which is, you know, <laughs> I do believe he leads all time like games played at shortstop. He does. He does. See, now, one thing you can't argue about Vizquel in terms of Hall of Fame case longevity. Had a lot of it for sure. The guy just stayed in baseball for, for a long, for a very long time. Yeah, um, but yeah, we'll get, uh, we'll get into this. I just want to see if. Okay, seven, 17th all-time in singles. All right, well, you know, top 20, top 20. Top 20 at doing his job, getting on base via the single. You do your job. That's what, it, yeah. that's what it's all about. Um, but anyway, on to, uh, you know, on to, we'll, we'll, we'll keep our bias, we'll keep our emotions out of it for like the first <laughs> third, third of this. Until you know when. Until, yeah. Because we did, we did honestly provide a fair case for him. Yeah, and you know, I, I until didn't, we didn't, I didn't just do the, the cheesy. I, I, I included some sabermetric statistics. Yeah. To yeah, he had twenty eight hundred hits, and he had eleven Gold Gloves over twenty four seasons played. One of the best players on defense there has ever been. He's up there with the great Ozzie Smith. He's a Hall of Famer, and I think Omar is going to be a Hall of Famer too. I was looking at a YouTube highlight reel and he backhanded the ball and he threw it across, threw it across the diamond, like the great Derek Jeter, one of the best defensive shortstops ever, Derek Jeter. And, you know, it's just a pleasure to be that he is uh, mentioned with the same names of the likes of which of Derek Jeter. Him and Rabbit Moranville. And Rabbit. Is it Moran? Moran I, I, I think I assume it's Moranville. More like Moranville. Am I right? <laughs> Got him. Uh, I got to look for the uh, name pronunciation. Um, do they have it here on baseball reference? Normally they do. I don't know if they do have it from like dead ball players. There's like, yeah. there's really no video evidence that he actually existed. Yeah. Who knows, but we'll get into the scale. So where he is at, uh, he is on his fourth ballot currently in uh, 2021 he got 37.0% on his first ballot, 42.8% on his second ballot, and 52.6% on his third ballot. And he is currently at 39.0% and has netted negative two. He's um, gonna he's gonna he's gonna uh, put up his worst percentage yet this year. Most likely. Um wow. With the ongoing news about him. Um and the on the surface stats with Omar Vizquel, 
Uh, he has 46, 45.6 career baseball reference war and 42, 42.4 career fan graphs war. He has 26.8 uh, peak baseball reference war. That's his seven best seasons combined. That is 16.3 below the average Hall of Fame Hall of Fame shortstop. Uh, his career quadruple slash line is 272, 336, 352 for a 688 OPS. He also has an 82 OPS plus and 83 weighted runs created plus in 12,013 plate appearances. This is uh, outside of any of the PED players. He has the most plate appearances out of uh, anyone we've covered on the bubble case. Uh, he also has... 29.5 career defensive wins above replacement, which is ninth all time, and 262.1 defensive runs above average, which is 15th all time. Also, 2,877 career hits, 80 career home runs, and 404 career stolen bases. You know, the standard count statistics, kind of when you look at. Uh, you know, Hall of Fame caliber players and players like Vizquel. And he won 11 gold gloves. And in 264 plate appearances in the playoffs, didn't really help or, I guess, hurt his Hall He's of Fame. He's been on case. par. Kind of on par, yeah. He hit 250 with a 643 OPS in the postseason. Um, but, you know, he might have he looked better than his stats. Uh, perceived him so you know what do we see from the uh on the surface statistics with omar viscal i mean you know what we see <laughs> yeah you know we we see what we see it's a guy you know i see i you know i watched him with my own eyes my own two eyes and he was one of the best defensive shortstops i ever saw yeah you know especially people our age our age we know about the career Mm-hmm. of the skill you know i remember i remember i remember that 97 alcs uh, walk off against the yankees yeah i mean i i was a big follower of the uh, 95 indians you know 144 and uh you know i remember i remember Vizquel i remember that one like, hit he got in the world series it was awesome yeah it was great i mean like you know he was going against the 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 95 braves any hit that you get off that rotation is just a premium you know yeah. For sure. <laughs> but, um, you know, we see what we see with the on-the-surface statistics. Uh, com- comparisons, there's really not a lot of guys to compare him to, you know, with with the uh, low production of wins above replacement in the high number of plate appearances. Uh, there are two other players with 43 to 48 baseball reference war in 11,000 to 13,000 plate appearances. Uh, those players are Rusty Staub, who was a seventh ballot drop, and Lou Brock, who is a Hall of Famer. Uh, and I guess, you know, the uh, justifi- justification there was when he was elected, he was the all-time stolen base leader. So, and he had 3,000 hits. And uh, there are two other players with an OPS plus between 80 and 85 in 11,000 to 13,000 plate appearances. Those two players are Rabbit Marinville or Moranville and Luis Aparicio, who are both Hall of Famers. So I guess Vizquel 
in terms of the four men to compare him to statistically, there are three Hall of Famers. So, uh, you know, maybe maybe there's something there. I don't know. So uh, I guess I'll get into the case four, and then I'll I'll sort of switch on it off at a certain point. Yeah, Omar Vizquel. Uh, only eight of the fifty-one other players with twenty-eight hundred plus hits are not in the Hall of Fame, and five of them are yet to be eligible. The other three are Barry Bonds, Rafael Palmero, and Pete Rose, who all had either PED allegations or gambling allegations. So. Uh, you know, all of the players with 2,800 hits, they're not in the Hall of Fame because uh, of, you know, uneligibility or because of off-the-field stuff. Omar Vizquel, uh, you know, they, he doesn't have PEDs or gambling problems. Everyone else who doesn't is in. There are also 12 other players with 2,800-plus hits and 400-plus stolen bases, and every one of them, besides Barry Bonds, is in the Baseball Hall of Fame. There are also seven other players with 29 offensive war and 29 defensive war that is on baseball reference, and all seven of them are Hall of Famers. Also, there are also seven other players with 29 plus D war and an OPS plus of 80 or better, and all seven are Hall of Famers. Also, there are four other players with 2,800 plus hits and 25 plus D war. They are Brooks Robinson, Pudge Rodriguez, Cal Ripken Jr. and Adrian Beltre. Three of those four are Hall of Famers, and one of them will be a first ballot Hall of Famer when he goes on the ballot. And that's where uh, Vizquel puts himself. Yeah. And uh, with Vizquel also, you have to recognize that respectable 272 lifetime average. Respectable. You got to respect it. You have to respect it. And, um, you know, we're not big... uh, you know, batting average people, you know, in terms of evaluating a player's offense, we're more, you know, on the uh, OPS side of things. And, you know, we get into the league adjusted OPS, you know, OPS plus weighted runs created plus. But if you're a, if you're a person who likes average, if you're an average person, (laughs) uh, you, uh, (laughs) you may like Omar Vizquel and his respectable 272, yeah. lifetime batting average and then and we all go, know that you know being respectable always translates to hall of fame talent yeah but you know when you when you add the 11 gold gloves oh yeah the, the 2800 hits the yeah the 2800 hits the 400 stolen bases chris the 400 oh. stolen bases the uh the fantastic defense you know everyone writes everyone every writer knows about his fantastic defense um that uh probably the second best defensive shortstop of all time behind ozzy smith likely likely so and in fact his defense yeah his defense is highly is spoken highly of by those who watched him and um my personal experience you know i when when Vizquel was 45 in his age 45 season i personally saw him play a game on uh july 22nd 2012 it was uh it was my father's birthday. He got, you know, it was a birthday present to himself. He got some, uh, he got like the, the club seats. We had Ooh. a nice meal beforehand at Fenway, you know, like a regular restaurant meal, not just the ballpark food. And didn't have a Fenway Frank. Uh, no, we, we did not, which, you know, that's why I sort of don't like whenever we got club seats. I, I like the regular seats, you know, you get, 
ball when I when I go to the ballpark, I want to have the ballpark food. But that's I mean, no, hey, no complaining about club seats though. Yeah, definitely not. And you know, it was it was uh you know a, a section above normal, and it was behind home plate, and it was not bad. It was very good. It was very good. But you know, he was Omar Vizquel was forty five and. You know, I got to see I got to see him in action. I saw him with my own two eyes. No television screen in the way. No, you know, biased cameraman not showing the great Omar Vizquel. And Vizquel went two for five that day and was four for four on fielding opportunities. And I, I personally could see the Hall of Famer in, in Omar Vizquel because I saw him with my own two eyes. Even yeah. as a 45-year-old, you know, I I really saw that. So... You know, I don't want to leak my personal bias into this, but, uh, and you know, the final thing looked, re- looked really good out there. That's, that's, that's the case. When you added that to the prep sheet, I thought you were just making a, up a complete random game. And you were just like, yeah, I saw him on July 22nd at Fenway and he, he went two for five. Uh, speaking of which. Out of, um, out of the nine hole. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was fortunate enough uh, to actually uh, witness an Omar Vizquel game as well. I'll never forget. It was on May 21st uh, of the year, 1999. Of course, that was his best year offensively. Uh, I went to a game in Detroit. Or no, it was in Cleveland against Detroit. I'm sorry. He went uh, He went two for four with two singles and a sacrifice hit. I mean, it was just pure bliss to see a guy like him out there. I was negative one years old. I'll never forget it. Um, it was truly a, a special honor of mine to see the great Omar Vizquel in person. And, you know, seeing the guy, seeing the guy sacrifice hit, I mean, the guy led in sacrifice, led his league in sacrifice hits four times, four times in 24 years. He led it four times. He led in sack bunts. You know, we know what nobody was better at giving himself up than Omar Vizquel. Yeah. And you you can't change my mind. He was a real team player. And that's, that's all. That's what what it's all about. You know, guys who get the job done. Vizquel was a guy who got the job done. So do you want to go into the case against? Um, I hate to, but I, hate uh, to I think we, you know, yeah, we have to, it, we have to do it, this every episode. We're unbiased. Like, listen, I didn't like, you know, going the case against, against uh, Billy Wagner. I didn't want to do that, but you know what? We had to do it. And we have to do it for Omar Vizquel too. Yeah. I didn't uh, want I, to point out Kurt Schilling's 216 wins and how everyone else, there's two other pitchers with 216 wins and none of them are Hall of Famers. No, no. It, it pains me to speak illy of the fantastic wizard of Omar Vizquel. But, you yeah. know, you got to do it. Yeah. So that being said, he had a far below average wins above replacement and peak war on baseball reference and on fan graphs for average Hall of Fame shortstops. Uh, he finished in the top 10 in B war once, never finished top five. And same thing with F war, only top 10 once in 1999. Never finished top 10 in F4. He also had one season with more than four B War or F War. And there has never been anyone elected to the Hall of Fame through the BBWA with two or fewer seasons uh, with four with uh, with four B War. So that's not great. I'll let you I'll let you we'll like we'll switch on and off here. Yeah. Um yeah, all the all the other players with two or fewer seasons with more than four war uh to get elected into the hall of fame they were all you know veterans era committee guys most of them played in the dead ball era and then of course there's harold baines there as well we don't talk about harold baines (laughs) harold baines this is a harold baines free podcast 
I don't even yeah. know who you're talking about. In fact, I don't know who that is. I've never heard of him before. I've never seen him or his 31 B war. Honestly, I never even heard about it. I never even heard of him until uh, 2018. No one had ever heard of him until 2018. <laughs> yeah. yeah no, I, I do not know of a man who slashed 289, 356, 465, 820 over a 22 year career was a great guy. Led the 83 Sox. Uh, to the pennant had a 38.7 B where I've never heard of him. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, not, it, not I, it didn't happen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No one our age, virtually no one our age had heard of Harold Baines before 2018. But anyway, Viscal uh, Viscal had 5.3 career wins above average. And there are only five players with less than six wins above average in the Hall of Fame, and none of those five got in through the BBWAA. So, you know, also what I should say is, um, and I'm breaking character a little bit here, but <clears throat> like Omar Vizquel should be a guy where you get mad at him getting into the Hall of Fame through a 16-person committee. Yeah. Not a 400-person BBWAA vote. I, You know, you don't really want that to happen. Uh, he, he seems like a guy where you get mad at him getting in through like a veterans era committee. The BBWAA is just, you know, it's not consistent, obviously. Uh, he also only had one season with an 800 OPS or better. And in terms of average as well, only had one season with a 300 average or better, which is, you know, the marker for being a very good player. And uh, also, the last thing I'll say before turning back over to Daniel never recorded a 200 hit season either. So, you know, you look at all those 2,800 hits. There was no 200 of them that came in the same year. Nope. So now let's talk about his plate appearances because a lot of people love to talk about his longevity, you know, 1200, 12,000 plate appearances. That doesn't happen very much. In fact, there are 22 players, including Omar Vizquel all time who have done that. Omar Vizquel, among those 22 players, he is last in the entire quadruple slash line with average OBP, slugging, and OPS. He ranks last among those 22 players in all of them. He also ranks last in hits, runs scored, and RBI. That's seven different stats where he is the worst of the 22 players with 12,000 plate appearances. So you talk about the longevity, but he didn't really do much with it. Also among those uh, with 12,000 plate appearances, his OPS plus is 30 points behind the next worst hitter, uh, which means the next worst hitter was 30% still better offensively than Omar Vizquel. That is the 21st out of 22 hitters with uh, with 12,000 plate appearances. And I'll, I'll go two more. He is the third worst OPS plus among 288 hitters of all time, actually tied for third worst, I should say. Uh, with two among 288 hitters all time with at least 2,000 hits. So that isn't cherry-picked at all. That is 800 hits below what he had. And once again, among everyone with 2,800-plus hits, he has the worst OPS plus by 23 points. Back to Chris. Yeah, and that's that's my thing with it, is like, you know, everyone with 2,800-plus hits is Hall of Fame caliber, but Omar Vizquel is so beyond far, far from the second worst guy it's not even close so yeah far from so far from like the average guy with 2800 plus hits Hold never up. mind the next worst guy 
Yeah, he is he is the outlier. Like he is the human outlier in all this. Uh, yeah, it, absolutely, no doubt about it. So, also, uh, Viscal uh, only got MVP votes in one season, and he ended up finishing 16th in that year. Uh, you know, and that's also the BBWAA. So, you know, that's that's where that's where they had him during his career. Only one, only one time getting MVP votes, and Viscal had one 10 home run season ever in one of the most offensive eras ever. And like, even in like, you know, we talk about of among those with 12,000 plate appearances, he's last in like all the count statistics, and he was in the most one of the most offensive eras in baseball history, and he was still not able to. Uh, to you know rank above last in any of the big categories in uh in offense outside of you know stolen bases i guess and he also has uh he also has a worse ops than red ruffing uh you know red ruffing you know and you know i guess you could say you know red ruffing is a hall of famer but uh the thing about red ruffing was is uh he was a pitcher yeah and uh he went in as a pitcher and he only had two that he had 2084 career plate appearances, but still a better OPS than Omar Vizquel. Not even OPS plus so OPS when there was not, when it wasn't as high. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, a guy who played in like the late thirties, I think. Um, yeah. So, so that's, that's that. And uh, the last thing I'll say before switching it over again uh Vizquel's 22 seasons with a below 100 OPS plus is an all-time record for position players and on that same topic he has 22 seasons with an OPS plus below 100 and at least 150 plate appearances no one else has more than 18 so uh, now we're going to look over at Fangraph statistics, at least for this one. Uh, his career 83 wins, above, uh, his 83 career weighted runs created plus was worse than the Nationals slash Expos and the Rockies, who had the worst team weighted runs created plus between 1989 and 2012, which were, of course, the years Omar Vizquel played. They were, they were at 89. So even if Omar Vizquel played his entire career with the worst offensive team during his era, he still would not have made them better offensively. In fact, he would have made them even worse. And if he kept, this is my favorite stat probably that I've ever found. If Omar Vizquel kept playing forever, never retired, became immortal and just kept playing, but he stayed on the exact same pace that he was on during his playing career, it would have taken him approximately 228 seasons to pass Barry Bonds in career home runs. He would have been like 260 years old, just still hacking away, trying to get number 763. Yeah. And it's incredible. And it's not like he was hitting 340 either. No. He hit 272 in his, in his career lifetime yeah. and uh, was not able to get, any home runs therefore making him a you know a bad offensive player yeah he so I'll, I'll say one more before i switch it back over uh everyone loves to talk about his defense those who watched him love to talk about his defense and i get it but he led his league 
among shortstops in defensive run average once in 24 years, and he never led shortstops in D-War for any single season of the 24 that he played in the major leagues. Never. Yeah, and, you know, I, one thing I like, you know, all the every every old school person would say, you know, like, you know, why, why are we going to trust – you know, defensive runs above average and D war, you know, you got to watch, but it's like, why, why are the, uh, advanced statistics only targeting Vizquel as being over eight? Why is it only him? Because, you know, all the other great players, it seems seem to have very good hall of fame caliber statistics, except him, except him. And, you know, the, the other players who were elected through like veterans committee and, and whatever, you know, it, he he yeah he him never leading it, it shocked me when when we found this yeah this was back in like pre this was like back in like early quarantine yeah this was, i think it was, uh, it was the same day that i found that bond stat yeah it was uh it was a couple months before the 2020 baseball season started but yeah it like he was never he, he was never the best at his at his position not just the league among all fielders his position, he was never the best at his position no. in these uh in, in defensive wins above replacement, which like you know, Ozzie Smith was best in the league four times, uh, among all fielders, and among you know, his position it was probably ten plus times. So, you know, you can't you can't really it's not very comparable. And anyway, uh the last thing we'll get to is kind of his hall of fame comps and debunking anything that you could compare him to in terms of, you know, what we actually believe is hall of fame worthy. Uh, Omar Vizquel is not a parallel to Ozzy Smith. You cannot compare him to Ozzy Smith because not only was Ozzy Smith far and away better defensively than Omar Vizquel, you know, I don't think that really, I think that goes without saying, but Smith was a better hitter by 5% on baseball reference and 7% on fan graphs, according to, you know, OPS plus and weighted runs created plus. And Ozzy Smith had 11 seasons with 30 plus stolen bases versus Vizquel's four seasons with 30 plus stolen bases. And Smith had a 55.2 BSR versus Vizquel's 14.3 BSR is the fan graphs metric for um, the amount of runs you gain for your team via base running. So Vizquel was about was, or uh, Smith was almost four times the base runner uh, as Vizquel over his career, according to that statistic, which uh, you know, it says, you know, it's not very comparable because a lot of people might say, you know, Ozzy Smith was, you know, below off below average offensively, but he was still better than Vizquel. He was still a better base runner than Vizquel and definitely a better defender than Vizquel. So you, that comp, that comparison cannot really be made. Uh, another guy that, you know, a Vizquel defender might, might uh, another comparison of Vizquel defender might uh, make is uh, Luis Aparicio, who played in the 60s and 70s, you know, a gold glove shortstop uh, and a very good, base runner but you know not the best offense you know not the best in the batter's box actually had the same exact ops plus and weighted runs created plus as 
Omar Vizquel. However, Vizquel is still not a parallel to Luis Aparicio. Aparicio led the league, led the entire league, the entire American League in stolen bases in the in his first nine seasons in Major League Baseball. You know that, along with Gold Glove defense, is is insane. And Aparicio also has 53.1 BSR versus Omar Vizquel's 14.3. By age 30, Luis Aparicio was only 50 home run or 50 stolen bases shy of Omar Vizquel's career. Yeah, e- exactly. And um, like the uh, 50s. Yeah, I think by age 32, he broke it. Yeah, and the yeah, by age 32, he had 417 stolen bases to Vizquel's 404. At age 45. And um, the 50s and 60s were not known for having, for not known with guys having large stolen base numbers. You know, Aparicio led the league with 21 stolen bases in 1956. Not as many uh, players were, there were not a lot of uh, guys stealing bases the way. Aparicio was, you know, it was more common in Vizquel's era, so that's something to put against him. And uh, <laughs> the biggest Hall of Fame comparison you can make is uh, a man who has been previously mentioned in this uh, Hall of Fame breakdown, uh, Rabbit Marinville slash Moranville. That, I think this, it's is actually, this is actually a legit comparison that you can make for in, in the case for Omar Vizquel. Uh, but, you know, Marinville, he retired in 1935, and he was inducted in 1954 on his 16th ballot. So it's just a – he – And he was, he, was, he was elected the year after he died, too. Yeah, it was like, you know, sort of a, a pity thing, you know, to put it a little harshly. But, yeah, it's it's not really a comparison you can make there because – he played so 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 long ago and you know all statistics point to that guy not being a hall of famer but yeah that's really the only hall of fame comp you could make is a guy who retired uh 85 years ago i really wish rabbit moranville was never inducted <laughs> yeah that then then it, the case would be none completely against Viscal. <laughs> that that's the one thing that I can't argue. Yeah, Moranville is the is the final boss. <laughs> like I've gone through the defense, I've gone through the longevity, I've gone through the Ozzy Smith and Luis Aparicio uh, comps. I can't get past Rabbit Marinville. Yeah, I mean the best the best comp you can make is that guy. So anyway, Omar Vizquel, woo, Hall of Famer. Yeah, so that's our uh, that's that's the dismantling of Omar Vizquel's. It was Hall of Fame. I mean, I remember I I did like a mini one of those segments last year. That video is on our Twitter, and you were you were kind of just there, like, oh, okay, I didn't know, I didn't know we were bashing Omar Vizquel here, and then I and then I opened you up to the world uh, that there is, and you you were welcomed with open arms, and you became a strong member of the anti-Omar Vizquel's Hall of Fame candidacy community. And we are proud to have you, Chris. Yeah, uh, I feel I feel welcome. Yeah, last year, you know, I definitely didn't know how much of a how much of an atrocity it was. But like, 
when I heard Omar Vizquel, Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame caliber player, didn't quite ring with me. Although, actually, one side note I will make because it's kind of funny. Like, it, it, like, uh, when I when I hear all the names, these are all guys who like were ending their career as I was starting to get into baseball. So when I think of like Scott Rowland, he played like half a year with the Blue Jays and was kind of just an old guy. So like when I heard his name, I was like. No, nah, he didn't really look. That's what I felt with Bobby Abreu. Yeah, and like, yeah, we saw you know Bobby Abreu at the end of his career, and uh, like the Mets, and I was just like, what? Like when I started watching baseball, Andrew Jones was just like a fat pinch hitter <laughs> for the Yankees, but yeah. I didn't know he was like an, you know, I think it was eight-time Gold Glover or something like nine-time Gold Glover. Uh, and Vizquel, last year I def like. He was just a, I, I saw him that one time at Fenway. He was a 45 year old shortstop coming out of the nine hole. So I was like, huh, that doesn't really like he, I don't remember him being that great, but then, you know, I looked at all the statistics and I could, you know, defer right from wrong. And yeah, Vizquel, it's pretty wild that uh, there's a case made being for him, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, when you look at, how to actually evaluate baseball players, not just based on the amount of hits they have. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess that's the, that's the end of the uh, Omar Vizquel bubble the case. Marathon episode. Yeah. And that also ends our, uh, our bubble case series. Wow. Oh, that was, I had, I'm not going to lie. I had a really good time covering the hall of fame this year. Yeah. Like, this was an, been, you know, I'll have a lot of takeaways tomorrow, but this was, I think this is probably going to be looked at as a negative year for the Baseball Hall of Fame, but I will still remember this one quite fondly going forward. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, and yeah, like this was an important year to do it because there were no guarantees of anyone getting on and there's definitely, what are we going to do next year? Yeah, next year, okay. I mean, we'll definitely we definitely won't go in depth, but it'll be more. Uh, you know, we won't do the prep for it, but you know, the the episodes will live on forever, and we'll always, you know, when we talk about, we can refer to them. We'll always, yeah, we'll always refer to them. Like when we talk Unless... about someone like Roland next year, we'll be like, mm-hmm. you know, we we have a Hall of Fame breakdown on our YouTube page. Yeah, unless like we have some sort of mind change about someone. Like, I don't know, maybe like a Mark Burley, like say if we start looking into him more and we feel like we did, we could have said more, like maybe we'll do that. But I don't, I don't know. I find it hard to believe that in a year, statistically, I will have changed my mind on any of these people. Yeah, that's the, that's sort of relieving to me in a, in a way, cause like my ballot for next year is almost set. <laughs> well, I need to, I still need to figure out cause like, you know, I need to decide what I'm going to do with Alex Rodriguez because like, you know, by definition of what I do with steroids, like he would be, you know, he would fit into the criteria of he was really good with even with them. But like, is there a line to be crossed when you hire other people to interfere with MLB's ongoing investigation against you when you lie on 60 minutes, when you lie on multiple occasions and when you do all the things that he did? I don't know. It's it's very tough for me to decide so i really don't have any idea uh what i'm gonna do next year 
Yeah, but there's definitely a guarantee of eight to eight eight players you'll have on that ballot. Yeah, and there's I don't even know which eight though. Yeah, there's there's a kind of a guarantee with you know at least like six of my players that are just definitely staying on the ballot. Yeah, and then like it'll be a it'll be a toss up with who I'm dropping when whenever the uh, two big guys that come up next year, or if I you know add whoever I add next year. So yeah, that's, uh, but yeah, in conclusion, that's, that's our hall of fame breakdown series. Hope everyone enjoyed it. Yeah. They will, they will live on forever because a lot of these guys will be on for many years. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah, I mean, this was, this was a lot of fun. Uh, the big day is finally upon us. Uh, if you're listening today, it might be, to, it might be later tonight. If you're listening tomorrow, it already happened, but you know where we stand on all these guys. We revealed our ballots last week, and I'm excited to see the results. I'm excited to see what the mid-tier level guys uh, get to, who gains the most, you know, what we're looking at for next year, uh, who's who could be the closest to getting on their way in, uh, how much will Bonds and Clemens and Schilling have to gain next year. Things yeah, how much, how much could Schilling drop? How much could Schilling drop is a good one. How much is Vizquel going to drop? Is he going to go like he could honestly go, drop 20% from where he was last year? Yeah, that is a, uh, a very real possibility. Um, but yeah, that, that wraps it up on the bubble case breakdown series and uh, wraps it up on episode 87 yeah. of above replacement radio. But there will be an 87 and a half. There will be an 87 and a half. So you know, uh, you can get comfortable with that with that number for another thirty minutes or so of broadcasting. Yeah. Um. So we hope you enjoyed this episode of Above Replacement Radio. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and want to watch, uh, watch us communicate these statistics and what have you, go to our YouTube channel and subscribe to our YouTube channel, and also watch the rest of our bubble case breakdowns that we've done we did nine others uh also if you want to follow us on social media follow me on twitter at chris underscore gianta follow daniel on both twitter and instagram at daniel underscore curran and for all your above replacement radio needs go to our youtube or uh, go to our instagram the show instagram it is called above at above replacement radio uh and we hope you enjoyed this uh mlb news breakdown you know everything going on in the baseball world and our bubble case breakdown of the week and we hope to see you on thursday where we're gonna where we're gonna be talking about the life and career of randy johnson and on friday where we're gonna be talking about the story of the 2008 rays see you then